0: Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Larry Siegel, the Gary Brinson Director of Research at the CFA Institute Research Foundation and an independent consultant, writer, and speaker. Before his, quote-unquote, retirement, Larry spent 15 years as the head of research at the Ford Foundation and a dozen before that at Ibbotson Associates. Our conversation starts with lessons Larry learned in his time as an allocator and turns to his recent paper describing the 10 myths of investing, an allocator's version of Byron Ween's annual surprises. After walking through each, we touch on his recently released book, Fewer, Richer, Greener, which offers a case for long-term prosperity and growth, even amidst the unexpectedly challenging times we're currently facing. Please enjoy my conversation with Larry Siegel. I know you've been in the business a long time, and we certainly crossed paths over the years. Why don't you just dive in wherever you'd like and talk a little bit about your path to where you're sitting today?
1: At one point, after getting an MBA from the University of Chicago, needed a job, and I had worked for my professor Roger Ibbotson as a research assistant, and he hired me as the first employee of Ibbotson Associates, which didn't actually exist. He handed me a big pile of paper, and he he said, "Well, I'm testifying on a utility rate of return hearing tomorrow morning, and I'd like you." to read this and tell me what it says. So he gave me an office on the floor of his office, and I'm a night owl and he's an early bird, so when he left around two, I got his desk, and I stayed up and I wrote a summary of the pile of paper, and it was there for him when he got there in the morning, and that was the beginning of Ibbotson Associates. This eventually turned into a a well-known data and consulting firm, which was merged into Morningstar a little more than a decade ago. Meanwhile, I had been recruited out of that organization in 1994 by the Ford Foundation, which made me their head of research. And I worked as a plan sponsor, selecting managers, evaluating performance, kind of acting as a deputy CIO for 15 years, working for Linda Strumpf one of the great chief investment officers of our time. And after that amount of time, I retired and set up a consulting practice. It's hard to call it a firm because it's just me and a couple of part-time helpers. And that's what I do. I write mostly white papers for money management firms to hand out to their clients, but also I'm the head of research part-time from home for the CFA Institute Research Foundation. And most recently, I've become a published author with a book called Fewer, Richer, Greener, which was published by Wiley last year.
0: Well, take me back a little bit to your time at the Ford Foundation and what your lessons were about investing coming out of that experience over that long period of time.
1: The most important lesson is a sign or a poster that hangs on Mayor Statman's wall. He's a professor at the University of Santa Clara, who, who works on behavioral finance, which is other people are not so stupid and you are not so smart. <laughs> so when you think you're gonna try to beat the market by doing careful due diligence and knowing all the colorful and interesting money managers in the world and traveling to visit their offices and doing what clan sponsors do, you may or may not. I think we did over the very long run, but most of that was by having more equities than the average foundation in a period when equities went up tremendously. The other important thing I learned is that when you're evaluating a manager, you've pretty much heard all their sales pitches. You know all of them personally. You you know pretty much what they know. You just don't do the detailed work that they do. So if you meet one who teaches you something that's really new and different, then you have a chance of getting exceptional returns from that manager. Otherwise, they're all moving in a herd and doing the same thing. So that would be the manager you hire.
0: In your role of head of research, how did you structure it and how did you think about research, which is quite different from the types of research you were doing at Ibbotson?
1: Well, the head of research at a plan sponsor or asset owner is really more like a head of risk and asset allocation. You know, we didn't do research to help sell our product to clients. We did it for our own benefit and ultimately the benefit of the people we give money to. So I structured the job as responding to requests by my boss, Linda, by trustees, because I was responsible for a lot of the communication with the foundation's trustees, and by other employees, other senior employees, to find out what they needed done. And then on my own account, so to speak, I was in touch with all the directors of research at brokerage houses money management firms, professors at universities, consulting this sort of orbit cloud of people that hang around the money management solar system and just found out what they were doing and tried to find little areas where I could contribute to it. And I published a lot, so I, I wanted to get my name out there even more than I did at Davidson Associates because the main job that you have when you have a job is to make sure that you can get another job. pursued that route. No offense to the great Ford Foundation, but you have to keep your resume sharp.
0: And the way that a research professional does it is by publishing a lot of research. You'd mentioned there's this difference between when you're in the thick of it, running around the world, talking to all these smart managers and trying to be smart. And then it sounds like you know when you come out, you're paying more attention to the Meyer-Statman quote on the wall. So how have you changed the way you've thought about manager selection and the value added of active management since you've left the Foreign Foundation?
1: Well, since I've left, I have only managed my own portfolio, which is a very modest portfolio, but it still takes management. And what I do is I buy index funds and then forget about them. And I don't literally subscribe to the view of never sell anything because that's a tax strategy. I don't pay taxes on my IRA and 401K. But I believe that if you try to time in and out of markets, that you will tend to buy high and sell low, and that's uh, the opposite of what you should be doing. My my rancher friend in Oregon says his strategy is to buy sheep, sell deer. So I listened (laughs) carefully, and I thought he was saying buy sheep, sell deer. And that's what I'm trying to do, but I haven't had any luck with the sell deer part. Only keep buying and hoping that it's cheap.
0: When you spent that much time running around, talking to great managers and you had relationships with them, how did you think about when you stepped away, whether you should take some of your capital and give it to some of those managers compared to just saying, okay, I'm on my own now. I should just index like everybody else who doesn't have the information I do about that active management community. Well, I
1: thought that I should invest with some of the managers. It's just that they have high minimums. If you need a million dollars to invest with a manager, I'm not going to put a large percentage of my personal net wealth in with one manager, but one of them who has a 40-act fund, I gave him $25,000, and I have about 15000 left. It's a frontier markets fund, and with the U.S. market down, the frontier markets are down more. But, you know, my philosophy is kind of buy all the way down because at some point, you're going to be very happy with those prices. And I'm 65, but I'm fairly immature. And if I ever become a grown-up, 75 or 85, I'll look back on today's prices and think that they were pretty good. They're not awesome in the United States, but in the rest of the world. I think the whole global stock market, XUS and maybe one or two countries, feels like a bargain to me.
0: Well, I want to talk about two different pieces of work. One, a recent piece you put out on myths of investing as we look out past this difficult period of time. And then the other, of course, the book. So why don't we start with this, this myths piece? In 2011, I
1: was invited to travel to Brazil So I went because I wanted to see Rio de Janeiro, but the the conference was in Sao Paulo, so I got to see two cities, one beautiful and the other not. And they asked me, what would you like to talk about? And I said, I believe that a lot of investors are beholden to wrong thinking. And it is fun to be a Mythbuster. It's fun to say that the emperor has no clothes. It's fun to say I'm smarter than other people. So I wrote a thing called Nine Myths of Investing and I gave a talk there. And after five years, I updated it and published it again. And then 2020 was so different from 2016 that I said, why don't I just update the myths one more time? But have a different approach and look at more macro myths. For example, myth number one, there's so much indexing that the market must be getting more inefficient because there's not enough money managed by people who analyze securities. That's a
0: myth. That's a common discussion back and forth. Is there a tipping point at some point in time that you think index funds would have to amass 80, 90, 95, 99% of the market before the active component would be inefficient?
1: I think there is a tipping point in that we're nowhere near it. It probably is somewhere past 80 and before 95. I'd be very surprised if we ever get there because as you approach that point, fewer and fewer dollars are managed actively and it should become easier to beat the market. The fact that most active managers don't beat the market shows you we're nowhere near that. And that's myth number one. Keep on rolling. Myth two is there's no inflation so the government can borrow all at once. Well, government is like any other organization. It has a balance sheet and an income statement, and cash in has to be at Least as much as cash out, or you're in trouble. Of course, they do have a printing press, but they don't print real economic resources like trucks and factories and patents and labor contracts. And they print this stuff called money, which loses its value the more you print of it. So there was a discussion about a decade ago, started by Carmen Reinhart and Kenneth Rogoff. They wrote a book called "This Time It's Different." showing that highly indebted nations get into fiscal trouble when their debt-to-GDP ratio exceeds 90%. They, of course, were studying a period where interest rates were much higher, so the debt service on a debt-to-GDP ratio that high could be enough to consume a lot of your tax revenue and crowd out the legitimate functions of government. With interest rates being lower, you can go to a higher debt-to-GDP ratio. It's not a magic number. And also a group of people found that they had made a data error. Because their work was not done quite carefully enough, their opponents took that as evidence that everything they said was wrong and you could borrow all you wanted. Well, no, you can't. (laughs) And it is not because of the debt service, it's because of the principal. We don't know where the tipping point is, and at today's low interest rates, it could be... It could be double that. It could be 180% of GDP. But at some level of indebtedness, we will have problems. There are only three ways a government can raise revenue. We can either get it through current taxation, borrowing, which means future taxation, or inflating away the real value of existing debt, which is taxing the past. It's taxing the accumulated savings from work done in the past. David Ricardo said this in, I believe, 1805 or 1815. Nothing has changed. And so we can expect inflation
0: at some point because the government is printing a lot of money. In markets like this, when people start paying a lot more attention to the indebtedness of corporations and the risk of bankruptcy, How do you think about the optimal capital structure for a government?
1: The optimal capital structure for government would probably involve some way of owning equity in the government, but you're not allowed to do that. So I believe that a government should be prepared for emergencies because God knows we get them and should keep its debt level low because when there's a war or a pandemic or a depression, it's gonna to have to get high and then you want it to get low again as conditions improve so that it can go up again without a ratchet effect where you like Japan, where you go to a hundred percent of GDP, then two hundred, then three hundred. So I I guess I would say I'm a fiscal conservative. I believe that the government should conserve resources so it can use them to do what governments do, which is help people when times are
0: tough. Let's move on to number three.
1: The myth number three is that we're in a new era of technological change at breakneck speed where growth outperforms value permanently, or at least as permanently as anybody cares about. I don't think that First of all, that that's possible. There can never be a preferred return to a certain type of asset. Because if an asset earns a risk-adjusted return that's higher than all other assets, then a wall of money will come in and drive the price up to where the expected return in the future is lower, and you get a cycle. Growth is very, very extended. Value is very, very cheap. We're at the extremes, you know, close to the extremes that we saw in 1999, and we know what happened after that. Value did so well that it became the only type of investment anybody wanted, and then it got to the point where value was expensive and growth was cheap, and the cycle went the other way. That was about the period from about 1999 to 2006. So we're now 13, 14 years into this growth wave and it's been driven by a group of companies I call FanMag because I can pronounce it, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Microsoft, Amazon, and Google. This can go on longer than you think, and it has, and it could go on for longer than you think in the future, and it may. But that just makes the rest of the market, including the non-U.S. equity market, where the whole thing is behaving like a value investment, even more attractive. And if you're a long-term investor, you should probably tilt your portfolio toward value, not growth at this point. You may lose for a while, but in 10 or 20 years, you'll be very happy.
0: All right. Next up.
1: Myth number four, we're in a new bipolar world of U.S. and Chinese dominance for those two economies are the only ones anyone cares about. Since it's hard to invest in China, a very large weight in the United States is a good idea. Well, sure. It is. It's a great country. And it has the largest market cap in the world by far, $30 trillion as of the end of last year. It's down from that. The second largest is China at around $6 and that doesn't include Hong Kong. But how about the rest of the world? If you add up the next 20 countries, Japan, Hong Kong, France, India, Canada, the U.K., and so forth, you get to $30 trillion, almost exactly the same as the United States. Japan's as big as China, within rounding error, and Taiwan, which is somehow not a country, is $1.2 trillion, which would cause it to rank just below Australia but above the Netherlands and put it well into the top 20, almost the top 10. And ignoring these investment opportunities is, is ridiculous. They're dirt cheap. The EFA XUS index hasn't gone up since 2014. The Emerging market index has kind of been all over the place, and the frontier market index is down, and you can buy companies at 10 times earnings. You can't buy them here unless the companies have one foot in the grave. The fastest-growing economies in the world are India, Vietnam, Bangladesh, some in Africa. So it's just a myth that the United States is the only country worth investing in. The farther afield you go from the mainstream, the more likely you are to find great deals. And if you're an active manager, you should pursue these. If you're an index fund holder as I am for my personal investments, for most of them, I would just hold the the global portfolio rather than the U.S. portfolio. So
0: you get about half in the U.S., and that's an appropriate weight. To what extent, when you're thinking about returns, are you thinking about valuation or economic growth?
1: Well, I'm thinking about both. The underlying driver of a stock isn't the growth of the overall economy. It's the growth of corporate profitability. So if you're in a country which is growing fast, but it's hard for companies to grow without taking tremendous amounts of delusion, or you can't buy the shares that the locals are getting, which are the good companies and they sell you the bad ones. <laughs> this has happened. You have to distinguish between the growth of the economy and the valuation of the stock. And that's what active management in non-U.S. markets is good for. There are an awful lot of people who looked at the bricks. Countries and said, "Well, these countries are growing at eight or five, and the U.S. is growing at one or two. So we'll just put our money in them." And then they went down. Of course, some of them went up a lot before they went down. The period of two thousand and three to two thousand and six or seven, I believe, the emerging markets index went up by a multiple of five to one, and that's how you get rich. You don't get rich at nine percent. You get rich by buying something that goes up by a multiple of five to one and still having it when the rise is over. And emerging markets were the great play of the first decade of the century, the odds or noughts. Now, they're disappointed. But the people in those countries still want to get rich. They'll do what it takes to become middle income and then upper income countries. And what's stopping them is bad government. We've seen this to some extent with China, which is the greatest wealth building in the history of the world. We're much richer, Europe is much richer, Japan, but we took 200 years to do it and they took 40. And they're much larger than the United States. As a portfolio investor, it's hard to make any money in in those companies. And I basically think you have to be an active manager and not buy just whatever they're selling you.
0: Right. Well, let's move on. I mean, the next one is just sort of a really interesting take on the next wave of technology and investing. So why don't you dive right in there on number five?
1: The next wave is clearly something to do with big data and artificial intelligence, sometimes called machine learning. Brian Kelly, who is at Yale and AQR, used to be at the University of Chicago, gave a great talk on this when he spoke at the Q Group, which is a discussion group for investment executives, particularly quantitative people. And he said that machine learning is just applied statistics. It's what you learn when you took your statistics class and, College or graduate school, and you read Thomas Bayes, who lived in the 1700s, and Gauss, who lived in the 1800s. And there's nothing that machine learning does that isn't in these foundational works, but it feels different and works differently when you apply it to really large amounts of data, you know, trillions of bytes, with really fast and cheap computers. So This technology is valuable, and Kelly uses it with his firm, the firm that he works for, AQR. He's a strong advocate of it, but he doesn't believe that people should be fooled into thinking that we've taught machines how to think the way that people think, nor is having access to big data an automatic or magical way of making money. It's just fundamental analysis. If you have a satellite traveling over the Parking lots, comparing the number of people who are parked in front of different stores, you're doing the same thing that a fundamental analyst was doing by listening to brokers' calls 50 years ago or by going to visit companies and asking them how they were doing and seeing what the executives had to say. You're trying to get under the hood of the company and find out through legal means what inside information the executives have that they're not allowed to use. That's all that machine learning is.
0: As the sophistication of those called data collection techniques grows, how do you think about the importance of that into active management?
1: I don't know. I have a client, Pluribus Labs, run by some really smart people, which is going to try this. They haven't launched And I don't know how they'll do when they do launch. But if anybody has a chance of beating their benchmark with that technology, it's them. And we'll see how they do. I guess I'm skeptical. They're going to have competition. A lot of people can set up operations like that the same way a lot of people can hire security analysts to tear apart balance sheets and visit companies. And the first mover advantage is that pioneers get shot. They spend a lot of money and invent the necessary technology. Then the settlers get rich. So the second mover advantage is the real advantage. Then the third, fourth, and fifth face diminishing returns. And I don't know where this particular firm stands in that hierarchy, but I don't know. I feel like it's a mixture of hype and a real advantage. If you have information
0: other people don't have, you should use it. Well, the next one is tied in some ways, to what you're talking about about inflation. I want you dive in on the activities of central banks.
1: Central bankers are the new rock stars we used to in business. worship CEOs. I remember being in business school, and Barry Sullivan, the head of First National Bank of Chicago, came to give a talk, but he showed up early and hung out in the students' drinking lounge, and people were looking at him. Kind of the way they would look at Paul McCartney at a concert. Hey, there's a CEO over there. Now it's central bankers. People know the central bankers the way they know the names of their favorite rock stars or rap stars or whatever. And they've put themselves, to some extent because we the people have allowed them to, in a position of they believe they can get us out of any kind of scrape we get ourselves into. A flood of money into the economy is the pill that cures all ills. Let's look critically at that for a second. When you're a fireman, you benefit from an abundance of fires. No disrespect meant to first responders, but if you fall down in my little town, 16 firemen come on four fire trucks to pick you up and see if you need to go to the hospital. They just—they need emergencies in order to justify their jobs and paychecks. When you're a central banker, you're really bored almost all the time, except in economic emergencies. So you benefit from emergencies. And if there are either perceived or real emergencies all the time, you get asked to consult with the kings and presidents of the world, invited to the best party, and you dine in $500-a-plate restaurants. This is craziness. The Great economists said that governments should engage in deficit spending during downturns and build up a surplus or a reserve during periods of growth, which is most of the time. Keynesians generally don't have anything to do with the economics of Keynes. They think it's always an emergency, so they're always trying to stimulate. And then when you have a real emergency, they're out of ammunition and can't do much of anything. I call this view of the world a crisis, crisis. The crisis is that there is always a crisis. Everything that happens is a justification for expensive intervention, which benefits the interveners. So I I think more humility about what
0: central banking can do would be a great idea. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Why do you think these shifts happen when the CEOs used to be the rock stars, and now we have the central bankers as the rock stars?
1: Well, I haven't thought about that, but it occurs to me there was a period of about 30 years between those two where money managers were the rock stars. And Warren Buffett still is. Uh, Jim Simons. Uh, I can think of a handful of household names. But there are fads and fashions. There was jazz, and then there was rock, and then there's rap. And despite all of my best efforts, rap has not gone away. So Alan Greenspan had something to do with it by being a very activist central banker. I'm a little uncomfortable with this explanation because it's a little too glib. There's been a tendency to think that governments are responsible for running the economy. Franklin D. Roosevelt certainly helped with that perception, but then it kind of went away. And with a succession of, financial crises that happened starting in the 1970s with the great inflation, the rise of interest rates to about 15%. And then the more recent crises, we've, we've really had three in a row in a short period, the tech bubble, the great recession, and, and then the recent events with the coronavirus. You want a man on a white horse to ride to the rescue, say everything is going to be fine. And neither corporations nor running managers are in a position to do that. Governments kind of are. I mean, they may be ineffective, but they can at least say that they're positioned properly in society for that role. So maybe that's it.
0: When you first did this in 2011, one of your myths was that the endowment model was broken. And I guess, uh, you know, maybe people still think that because it's still on your list.
1: I think that they believe the endowment model is broken because endowments have underperformed the stock market by a lot. Now what actually happened? They went into alternatives, which range from what I call normal alternatives, like real estate and private equity through hedge funds, which are kind of an in-betweener and I'll get to that in a second to true exotics like violins and the intellectual property rights that sometimes trade music royalties and pharmaceutical royalties and so forth, viatical settlements of life insurance. Their performance has been about what you would expect if the stock market had not doubled and then doubled again. In a normal rate of return environment, between 6 and 9% a year, and with interest rates at, say, 3 I don't think that's normal. I think the normal is a little higher. The mix of stocks and bonds that is the benchmark, let's call it 60-40, would have had a fairly mediocre rate of return over the last 10 years, and I think that the endowment model investments would have beat it but the stock market went up and up and up, and even more surprisingly, the bond market did the same thing. Interest rates went from three or so, three or four at the beginning of the period, to zero point something at the end, one if you're looking at the 30-year, which is a huge return for bonds. At those low interest rates, convexity takes over, and the rate of return when interest rates go down it's just astonishingly large, and there are periods where bond speed stocks. You can't compete with that by buying private equity or by buying portfolios of of hedged instruments where you hedge out the beta because all the action is in the beta so if endowments continue doing what they've been doing and markets act more like normal markets, I think that they'll do fine. They're not going to shoot the lights out because those opportunities don't exist anymore if you're the first again if you the first person to adopt a new strategy you may do very well and then when a flood of money comes in you're not going to do as well but i think that the the very long term orientation and a willingness to take some illiquidity risk is not so bad as long as you set aside enough money to pay let's say 3 years expenses and have a healthy cash flow into the organization Colleges that are providing a poor product for a high price don't deserve to survive, and they're going to be in trouble no matter how their endowments do. But if you provide a good product at a fair price, the endowment is a mixture of working capital and uh, trust fund that, according to James Tobin, the Nobel Prize winner, represents the claims of the future against the present. and and I think that the endowments in general are doing an okay job.
0: I want right, to jump around a little bit because part of what you were framing out was that this notion of if markets are kind of more normal returns, and we've recently gone through this period of turmoil, and a couple of your myths relate to this perception of a low return environment, certainly on the bond side. I think that continues, and we'll, we'll see how this all shakes out with stocks. But why don't you why don't you discuss those thoughts? The mantra
1: a decade ago was we're going to be in a low-return environment. People look back 10 years. We had had two crashes and looked like we were going to be in a low-return environment because that was all anybody could remember. So we, if you're in a low-return environment for long enough, you're in a high-return environment. So then the stock market doubled and doubled again. Bonds went up and up. And so now that we've been in a high return environment until seven weeks ago, we're in a low return environment because prices are high. They're not necessarily internationally, but they are in the United States. And the prices of fixed income internationally are simply out of sight. The idea of negative nominal yields is kind of like telling me that gravity has begun to pull things up instead of down. You can invest in German bonds where you buy a bond for 103 euros today and in 30 years, having received no interest, you receive 100 euros back. I don't know who would buy one unless they're forced to do so by regulation or contract. Uh, contract being an index fund or some kind of a bank charter. but That's a low return environment. <laughs> yeah. well, Remember when you used to be able to guarantee 9% by buying a laddered portfolio of treasury bonds? I was about 24 when you could do that, but I was old enough to have a, a finance job and a finance education, so I knew what was happening. Are we going to be in a low
0: stock return environment? We just got much better. (laughs) Well, there's an interesting question where people have said for a long time that we're in a low return environment, and it didn't play out that way for a decade, maybe 12 years since the financial crisis. But now, if you remeasure that period of time, depending on what day with, with things moving up and down... It certainly muted some of what looked like a high return environment for a decade.
1: It has, and that's why I said things look better now. That Rothschild will forget whether it was Nathan or one of his relatives said about 200 years ago by when there's blood in the streets, but we usually forget the second half of his aphorism was even if the blood is your own. <laughs> So I'm inclined to think that we're going to get through this panic. Um, The market has already, I think, reversed itself something like a third of the way back to the top. It's going to be volatile and difficult. It's going to be a hard time to be an investor for a while. But if you care about the next 20 or 30 years, not the next 20 or 30 weeks, what's most likely to happen? We'll get this under control. It'll be a new virus that we deal with on an ongoing basis, like the flu or SARS or MERS or or AIDS or polio. There will be a vaccine. There may be a cure. And we'll move on to the next crisis. Meanwhile, global growth should proceed around 3.5, which is the historical rate. I think it'll be better, actually, because we have been in a slow period for the United States. There's no reason why the United States should grow this slowly for this long other than foreign competition sometimes (laughs) cramps your style a little bit and that we've had kind of a hangover from the last global financial crisis in 2007 to 2009. For some reason, financial crises inhibit growth more than other crises. Maybe it's a lack of capital, I don't know. But after the financial crisis of 1929 to 1932, we didn't claw our way back to the 1929 level of production until 1937, then it fell again. We didn't get back to the 1929 level never to be surpassed until 1941. we were producing mostly things to be blown up. And a healthy peacetime economy didn't return until 1948-49. So 20 years, the much smaller crisis of the current century seemed to have worked itself out after 10 years. (laughs) And this isn't forever. And look what happened after the 20 years of Great Depression and recovery was over. We went into another Technology driven boom, the likes of which we haven't really seen since, except for a few years in the 90s. But these things happen every so often, and we should be prepared for it. Right now, we're in a little bit of a technological lull, but Vietnam isn't, Bangladesh isn't, China isn't, although they're having some short term troubles. The rest of the world wants to live the way we do, and if they can't come here, Physically, they want to make their countries look more like the United States.
0: All right, let's turn to the last one. And I'm going to be diving in more in the future on the whole movement in ESG. You've picked on one aspect of it. Probably the biggest myth
1: of all is that we can move the whole world into the middle class without using energy in the form that we currently know. Climate change is a concern. The, the standard error or error bars around the potential cost of climate damage done by climate change is so large that it ranges all the way from no damage at all, but we don't care if it happens or not, to effectively the end of the world. But when you have that little knowledge, it's hard to figure out what to do. So, meanwhile, most of the people in the world, and almost majority, has never been middle class, and wants nothing other than to be able to buy a car or refrigerator, have some savings, perhaps own their apartment, live like Americans or Portuguese or the Southern Brazilians, or the Taiwanese, or whoever you, your role model is for a middle class society—those are pretty good ones, by the way. The biggest ingredient in that recipe is energy. I have an anecdote in my book called "Fewer, Richer, Greener," which you said we get to in a minute, but I'm going to quote from him now. There are women and children in Kenya. Kenya is not a particularly poor African country, but. It's has a lot of poor people in it, who spend hours every day searching for wood to burn inside their homes without a chimney. That's how they heat, that's how they cook, probably how they get lighting. So they suffer from serious lung disease starting at a young age. More people die from smoke inhalation than from malaria. Their education is severely reduced because little children after work, collecting fuel during school hours. Now, I just cannot bring myself to support a policy that takes energy away from these people. They need to use more, not less. Maybe we need to use less. But energy transitions from wood to coal, coal to oil, oil to nuclear, whatever's going to be next, take a long time because of the size of the installed base and the capital required to build out the new infrastructure. So we're going to use a lot of carbon-based energy, whether we think it's good for the environment or not. So we need to be looking at ways to remove carbon from the atmosphere. There's a lot of technology being developed along those lines. Very encouraged by that. And we need to find ways to get clean energy fast. Fast means 20 to 40 years. The cleanest energy there is is nuclear power. We know how to build small, standardized plants so that the parts are interchangeable, the knowledge is interchangeable. If you have a problem in one plant, the nuclear engineers from another plant can just drive over and take a look instead of custom building every one. So these problems are soluble. We have to have the political will. And I believe that as this energy transition takes place, there's a very large opportunity for investors in the right kinds of companies and countries.
0: Well, I want to make sure we get a chance to talk about your book because we're coming through such a difficult time. And If nothing else, the book is an extraordinarily broad look at reasons to be optimistic for the long term. So why don't you just dive into the thesis and we'll go from there. The thesis is that there are three
1: great trends that are underappreciated by most people. One is the population explosion is coming to an end hence my use of the word fewer. We're not actually gonna have fewer people for a long time. The population is gonna continue to grow but slowly, it'll peak late in this century and then begin to decline. Richer, the world is getting richer, so much richer that it's almost hard to believe the data, but for the first time in history, half of the world's population is middle class by the standards of the World Bank, the world GDP per capita in purchasing power terms is around sixteen to $18,000. That's what the United States was in 1949 when we were unquestionably a first world country. We were the richest country in the world. And the fact that the whole world now lives on average at a standard... That the United States had only 70 years ago is the greatest accomplishment of mankind in economic terms. But we have brought modest amounts of comfort and wealth to about 4 billion of the 8 billion people in the world. Both of those numbers are a little high, but there are a billion two or a billion three living in first world countries. Not all of them have first world living standards. We have poor people. But then there are another several billion living in countries that are not first world countries who do live in a first world living standard. Hundreds of millions of people in China, a couple hundred million people in India, and so forth. So, greener. Yes, the environment is getting better. If you look back at 1960 or 1970, our industrial cities here in the United States were just disgusting. When I was 15, the Cuyahoga River, which is the main river in Cleveland, Ohio, caught on fire and almost set one of the bridges above it on fire. Now you can swim in Lake Erie, and people do. That's the lake that that river drains into. Two things happened one is regulation, the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Act, which were Long overdue, now countries bring in environmental laws at a much lower level of of income than than we waited for, and they learn from our mistakes you know. and then uh, the other is the deindustrialization of the United States, moving it to China and other places, Mexico, parts of East Asia, and now India we're seeing some in Africa. So they're going through their dirty phase, but cleaning it up much faster than we ever did. And the amount of forest in the world is going up, not down. The amount of recreational land available to people in cities is going up, not down. And the amount of dangerous pollution, toxic chemicals and so forth, is much more under control than it was a two generations ago. Climate change is an issue that I try to tread on lightly in the book because it makes everybody angry. They either believe that it is a catastrophe that cannot be avoided or that it's not a problem that we just have to adapt to it and live with it. I come exactly right down the middle. I'm kind of a lukewarmist. I believe that we will mostly have to adapt, but that it's a real phenomenon and that there are things we can do to mitigate it and that we should be prepared to do more to mitigate it in case it becomes more of a problem than it is now.
0: So what was the most interesting aspect of your research as you were putting it together?
1: Well, the richer part, because I'm trained as a financial economist and I know more, the causes of the great betterment What made people start to be able to accumulate assets and the ability to generate income, which is human capital, starting about 250 years ago in the northwestern corner of Europe, England, Scotland, the Netherlands, and then spreading to the rest of Europe and the Americas, mostly North America and Japan, in the 19th century and then spreading to much larger parts of the world in the later part of the 20th century. What is this? People have been around for tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands, if you take a more anthropological view, and they never created wealth in a way that was self-sustaining and enduring. You've got these little bubbles of achievement, ancient Greece, ancient Rome, Italy in the 15th century. You had a first great divergence where, where Europe pulled away from the, you know, China was actually the dominant economy in the world in 1400. And then Europe began to, Pull out of the Middle Ages, had the Renaissance. The Renaissance improved living conditions for many people, but not most. And in 1750, there were people who were just as poor as they had been in 750. But then things changed very fast. And what the usual explanation is capitalism, property rights, the Declaration of Independence, the fact that England became a parliamentary democracy instead of an absolute monarchy. The discovery of ways to tame and use various kinds of energy, changes in the labor market, the effective elimination of slavery, that's where you had to pay people, and then they could get paid for increasing the amount of human capital they had, and then uh, large Organizations can accomplish things that small ones can't. So Edison and Westinghouse and Ford, Rockefeller, Bill Gates.
0: Let me ask you one more before we just dive into some closing questions, which is if you think about the thesis of fewer, richer, greener, what are the implications of it if you were sitting in your old seat at the Ford Foundation and other allocators?
1: International diversification and a focus on equities. First of all, the market conditions make it hard to focus on anything but equities. You can't make any money at negative 0.32%. That's not the U.S. rate, but the U.S. rate seems to be headed that direction. There's going to be more wealth creation in the future than there was in the last 250 years. You may have to wait 250 years to get it, but the Ford Foundation intends to be there in 250 years. And the first 30 of those are within the time horizons of people now living in and working in organizations. I believe equities have had a great run. It's hard to be bullish about something that's gone up that much, but after a period of adjustment like we've just had, I'm, more optimistic about the future. The point is to participate as an investor in this continuing betterment of living standards around the world. And the way that the system lets you do that is through really three kinds of equity. Publicly traded stocks, private equity of various kinds, including things like infrastructure deals and real estate. So that would be my focus.
0: All right, great. Well, let me ask you a couple closing questions and we'll wrap it up. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I play
1: three instruments, piano, guitar, and violin. I also like to walk on the beach for exercise and because the beach is beautiful. And as in my middle 60s, I can't do all the stuff I used to do. So I want to make sure I can do the things that I used to do that I will be able to do for another 20 years if I'm still alive. And so those are them. I've been playing all three instruments at some level of skill, larger or smaller, for 50 years. So maybe I'll put together a band. What's your
0: biggest pet peeve?
1: People who see the... Black cloud and not the silver lining and everything that happens in the world.
0: How about your biggest investment pet peeve?
1: People who pick individual stocks without knowing anything about them other than what everyone else knows, which is that they make cool products like Apple or that they are going up. Where the word going is in the present tense, what they mean is they went up. I tell them, shut up and index.
0: (laughs) What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Kindness. That's always a good one. All right, Larry, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: I am not a rabbi or priest or minister. I would say make sure you're having fun that is sometimes misinterpreted as follow your dreams you may be able to follow your dreams all the way to the poor house it's no fun to be poor learn to do something that enriches other people's lives so that they'll pay you and is also fun because you're going to be doing it a lot for a long time
0: larry thanks so much for taking the time really appreciate it thank you ted